can law be loving? Can law be loving? Law and love. Can we put those two words in the same sentence? Generally speaking, we, we tend to keep them separate, don't we? At least how they fit together isn't often intuitive to us. What does law have to do with love? Can, can giving law really be loving? It can be loving, right? I mean, just think of the father who commands his son not to stick his finger in an electrical socket. That's a loving law, isn't it? It's a loving command. Doesn't it guard a, a child from danger and death? Law can be loving. Can obeying law be loving? Can it be a way of, of, of expressing love? We tend to uh, associate duty with, uh, with obedience with duty, don't we? Um, we? We tend to think of obedience more in transactional terms rather than relational terms. Obedience is less affection and more kind of accommodation. But perhaps obedience to law can be an expression of love. Obedience to law can be an expression of love, not when we we look at the law itself, but when we look upon the one who gave the law out of love for us and to guide us in the way of life and blessing, to guard us from danger and death. Well, this is what we turn to think about this morning as we study Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 44 and stretching through the end of chapter 5, which is verse 33. As we study God's words together this morning, it's my prayer that we would hear God's law, that as we hear it, we would return to Him what we have received from Him, and that's love. I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there, uh, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 150. And while you're turning there, let me just remind us of the context that we're uh, of our our text this morning. I've mentioned before that the book of Deuteronomy is comprised of three speeches from Moses. Through these speeches, Moses is keen to communicate one simple truth: that God loves his children, and his children are to love him. That's the message of Deuteronomy in a nutshell. God loves his children, and his children are to love him. Now, this book was immensely practical for the ancient people of God because in the book, Moses outlined how God's children were to love him, how they were to express that love. They were to love him by means of worship and by keeping his commands. We concluded our study of Moses' first speech last week, and in that first speech, Moses called the people of Israel to remember their failure and to remember God's faithfulness. God's love has been revealed in his faithfulness in bringing them out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and through their disobedience, and now they are on the edge of the promised land. In his first speech, Moses urged his hearers to obey God's commands to go into the land. And what should they do once they got in the land? How should they live inside this land that God was giving them? What were the commands they were to obey? Well, that's what the second speech is about. The second speech from Moses begins in, in, uh, in chapter 5. It's set up in chapter 4. This section stretches from chapter 4, verse 44, and all the way to the end of chapter 28, verse 68. And Moses' purpose in this second speech is to call the people of Israel to remember God's law, to live according to it, and in doing so, he tells them that they will display God's love to the world. Love is at the heart of the passage that we're setting today. God's love is evident as Israel's history is once again recounted. God's love is evident as this new generation has the privilege of living in covenant relationship with God. And God's love is evident as he expresses his heart's desire for his people. God desires that his people keep his commands and so live long in the land. Sometimes it's important, I think, for us to put our finger on the the pulse of of the passage that we're reading. So as we begin our study, that's what I want us to do first. Though we're going to kind of begin in verse 44 of chapter 4, I want you to take a look at chapter 5, verse 29. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 29. It's toward the end of our passage. It contains the words of our God. In fact, it contains his heart's desire for his people. After they've heard the Ten Commandments restated by Moses, as we read this passage, we should ask, what does God want for his people? What does he want from his people? And this is what he wants. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me 
and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. See, God wants his people to have hearts filled with love for him, love for his law, because it reveals him. Love is the way of life and blessing. And so we're going to study Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44, through chapter 5, verse 33, in three sections under three headings. Number one, a history of love. Number two, a law of love. And number three, a promise of love. If you're taking notes this morning, those three headings will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first point, a history of love. Please follow along as I begin reading in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44, and I'll read through chapter 5, verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor. In the land of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came up out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Eroar, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Siron, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. Well, these verses, they contain so much history in such a short span. They effectively serve as the historical prologue to Moses' restatement of the Ten Commandments. And what should be clear through the history recounted here is that the Lord of love has watched over and guided his people through history. I wonder, did you notice that Moses mentioned Egypt twice? Egypt's mentioned right there at the end of verse 45, and again, the end of verse 46. See, verses 44 to 45 tell us when Moses first spoke the law, after God saved Israel from slavery. Then verses 46 to 49 tell us what happened after that. Essentially, God led his people through the uh, wilderness to the edge of the promised land of Canaan. And as he did, he gave land, uh, his people land from powerful kings. You, you see, this, this brief history, this brief recap of history, reminds the people of Israel that God delivered them from the hand of one powerful king, and he delivered to them the land of other powerful kings. He has been gracious and generous to his people in their history. And by now, as we're kind of reading through the, the book of Deuteronomy, I wonder if we've become to grow, kind of grown tired of this history. We've heard this story of Israel's history over and over and over again in the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. And I've got a newsflash for you. We're going to hear it in chapter 5 as well. Um, not, only this, not only is this repetition of the same events a feature kind of, of, of an oral culture and of ancient Near Eastern literature, but the truth is, is that biblical Christianity is a historic religion. It's rooted in history. Our hope of salvation is rooted in historic events. So we believe that in history, God took on flesh in the person of Jesus. We really believe that in history, he lived a life of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience to God the Father. We really believe that in history, he was crucified, dead, and buried taking the punishment due to our sins in his death. We really believe that the historic event of his resurrection took place three days after his death on the cross. And we really believe that he ascended into heaven, is reigning at the right hand of the Father, and that he will interrupt history once more when he returns to judge the world. See, part of what we do here every Sunday, brothers and sisters, is recount the history of God's love for us. We do it to remind ourselves that we have a share in that past history. 
And Moses, as we see here, he has recounted Israel's history time and time again so that they would not forget it. For if they forgot their history, then they would forget the God who governed their history and made his love known to them in their history. Moses does something else with Israel's past history. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, Moses effectively, effectively says, the history of the past is relevant to your present. And I hope this jumped out at you as we were reading Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Seven times, Moses applies the events of the past to the present generation standing on the edge of the promised land. Look at verse 2, you see there. Moses says, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. That's a verse that should stand out to us and say, we would say to ourselves, wait, wait, what? It should make you say kind of, wait, what? Not because of the word Horeb, which I trust by now you know is just another name for Mount Sinai, but because the covenant that Moses is referring to was made 40 years ago, recounted back in Exodus chapter 20. See, those listening to Moses were we little ones when that covenant was made. In fact, most of them may not have even been alive. The covenant was really made with their parents, right? Well, what does Moses say there in verse 3? He emphatically says, Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. How does that work? There is a kind of, of covenant continuity that stretches across the generations of the people of Israel. In the mind of Yahweh, in the sight of God, those standing there, listening to Moses, on the edge of the promised land, were also partakers, participants, and parties brought into covenant relation with God through that past covenant at Horeb. Moses is kind of verbally sticking his finger in the chest of his hearers, and he's saying, God made this covenant with you. He made it with you. God personally covenanted with you. And interestingly enough, so much of the language in this text is actually in the singular. It almost makes you wonder if kind of Moses is locking eyes with people. And he's saying, you, you who I'm looking at right between the eyes, God made this covenant with you. You know, I hope you see why the history of love is so important. It reminds this present generation that being brought into a covenant relationship with God, with the God of love, is the greatest gift of grace that they could ever receive. Who wouldn't want to be loved by him? Who wouldn't want to be loved by a God who, who rescues his people from slavery? Who patiently waits for them as they wander through the wilderness? And who calls them home into a land that he gives them? So generous. Who wouldn't want to be loved by God like this? And now it is time for this new generation to personally themselves embrace this covenant of law. Really to embrace this covenant of love. That's why Moses says in verse 1, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. As they stood on the banks of the Jordan and listened to Moses preach, that was the decision that they were faced with. Either to embrace this covenant of love and the God of love, or to reject him and turn away from him. Now, I've been referring to the Ten Commandments as a covenant of love. That's what's ahead of us in the text. But I wonder if that's the first thing that pops into your minds when you think of the Ten Commandments. Maybe you think of rules. And let's be honest, free creatures like us don't like rules. Uh, maybe you think of something else when you think of the Ten Commandments. Do you think of love? I hope that you do. I hope that Jesus' words, his summary of the law in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 40, come flooding into your mind when you think of the Ten Commandments. Believers have long recognized that the sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. What we are about to read as we turn to consider our second point is a law of love. Follow along as I read this law of love. Deuteronomy chapter 5, let's begin there. Just two words before verse 6 begins. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth, is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you. That your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not covet, you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is an incredibly wonderful section of God's word. It's such a good gift to us. We could profitably spend a Sunday on each of the Ten Commandments, but that is approach, that approaches for another sermon series. There is a usefulness to studying God's Word at different levels, uh, kind of high up in the clouds or close up in the weeds. And believe it or not, I am taking the approach here of being right in between those two. The reason that I mention this is because I'm not going to say everything there is to say, perhaps contrary to popular opinion after the sermon. I'm not going to say everything there is to say on the Ten Commandments. Instead, we're going to consider the Ten Commandments through the lens of two themes, freedom and love. First, we should notice Moses' emphasis on slavery, or more accurately, freedom. We see this there in verses 6 and 15. See, verse 6, that's traditionally known as the preface to the Ten Commandments. And what does Moses emphasize in the preface? He emphasizes that the people of Israel, by the grace and mercy of God, are no longer slaves in Egypt. You see, this is how. The Ten Commandments are how free people live. Not enslaved people. This is how free people live. And connected with this, we need to understand that God's people are to keep God's commands, God's law, not to be saved, but because they have been saved. See, from the perspective of the Old Testament, God's rescue from slavery in Egypt was his great saving act. Immediately after the exodus from Egypt, we read this, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day. From the hand of the Egyptians. That's Exodus chapter 14 verse 30. And then one chapter later. Moses sings. He sings I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. That's Exodus chapter 15. Verses 1 and 2. The Exodus. God's rescue of Israel from slavery. Was a saving event. Is it any wonder that Luke chapter 9, verse 31, speaks of Jesus' cross work as a departure, or literally an exodus. Friends, brothers and sisters, we don't keep the law because we're slaves. We keep the law because we're free. And this comes out in a radical way in verse 15. Right there, at the end of the fourth commandment, where God commands his people to take a Sabbath and rest on the seventh day, God gives his people the reason for keeping this commandment. He effectively says, do, do you remember when you were slaves in Egypt? Do you remember when you had to work every single day? Do you remember when Pharaoh worked you to the bone and exploited you? You're no longer a slave. You're no longer under Pharaoh's rule. You're under the rule of a different king. You live under the rule of a loving king. You're free, free to take a day of rest. In fact, everyone under your authority is, 
should rest on that day too, lest you become an enslaving Pharaoh. Do you see how this command prevents exploitation of the economically vulnerable in a society? Do you see how loving this is? Friends, brothers and sisters, who do you work for? Why do you work? Do you work as a way to express your love for God and love for your neighbor? Or do you work because the world is dependent upon you? You see, that would actually be the temptation for those first hearing this message. In an agrarian society, they would have been tempted to think that they had to work every single day. Their lives depended upon it. They had to provide food for their families. What would happen if they didn't keep cultivating the crop and gathering in the harvest? Would they fall short of being able to provide for their family in days that, were, that the crop was few? But here is God gently saying to his people, I made the earth and I made you. You can trust me to provide for your needs. The surrounding nations, they would have looked at Israel's six and one day cycle and they would have thought they were fools. What a foolish nation. They would have thought, why throw away a perfectly good work day and make sure that you have food to eat? They didn't realize that resting from your labors for a day was an expression of faith and loving trust in God. Instituting the Sabbath was God's way of expressing his love for his people who need rest. And keeping the Sabbath is ultimately an expression of loving trust in God's good provision. Trusting that, you know, the Lord will provide for me. Keeping the Sabbath is a way of saying, I will entrust my whole life and future to God because I know he loves me. Freedom. This law is how free people live. But the second thing I want us to see about the Ten Commandments is they're really about love from beginning to end. They are about trusting God and loving him above all else. Isn't this where the first commandment begins and the last commandment ends with matters of the heart? In the first commandment, which you can find there in verse 7, God tells us who is ultimately worthy of love. It's an act of love to tell us that we're just spinning our wheels if we love anything or anyone else more than him. It's an act of love to tell us that our love is too low if we don't love the most high. Those who love God will love and trust him before anything and anyone else. How loving of God to call us out of wasting our time and endangering our eternal souls to things, people, and gods who cannot save. We're not Old Testament Israel, so what about us today? Well, we keep this command by having no other God but Jesus. He alone can save, and therefore he alone is worthy of our worship. What about the second commandment? How is this loving? Is it, is it not loving of God to protect his people from forms of false worship? As we thought about last week, we, we cannot worship the right God in the wrong way. Those who love God will be content that he has not given them his image and form. They will love the fact that he's utterly unique, that he's not like the gods of the surrounding nations so that they will not worship him like the gods of the surrounding nations. Love for God shows itself in trusting that God knows how he is best worshipped. We can worship the image that God has given us. Speaking of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You see, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is the only one qualified to make an image of himself worthy of worship, and he has in the person of Jesus. It's interesting to think that Jesus didn't teach his disciples how to draw or sculpt. Jesus didn't teach his disciples how to draw or sculpt, but he did teach them how to preach. He taught his disciples how to wield the power of the preached word and to call his people to worship. And the word of God is still what governs the worship of God. God has shown us his love for us in giving us his word. And we show our love for God in giving ourselves to his word. And the third, in the ancient world, naming and wielding uh, the names of others express control and sovereignty over them. In this command, God has lovingly reminded us that he's actually sovereign. No, 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 you're not going to wield my name in that way. We do not control him, but rather delight in his sovereign control. Those who love God will not take his name in vain. They won't make it common. 
belittle it, or use his name for their own personal gain. When we really love God, we hold him and his name in high regard. We express our love for God through this command by submitting ourselves to the rule of Jesus, the one whom God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We've thought a little bit about the fourth commandment already, but let's think about it a little more. How is this loving? Here we're reminded that we serve the God who will one day bring his people into a final rest. We show our love and trust of God in that we rest each week in anticipation for that rest that remains for the people of God, as the writer of the Hebrews would say. Those who love God will be grateful that he has called them to worship, to rest, to trust that he sustains our lives and to be content with his provision. The people of Israel were to celebrate the Sabbath each week. And yet, when we turn to the New Testament, we see that Christians, the Israel of God, as Paul calls them in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, that Christians worship the Lord Jesus on Sunday. Jesus, he fulfilled the fourth commandment. He showed the end and goal of the Sabbath. Jesus shows us that we don't ultimately find our rest in one day each week, but we find our rest in one person, in him. We ultimately rest in Christ, and that is why we gather to celebrate each Lord's Day as we look forward to the final day of the Lord, where we will know rest without end in that world without end. How does honoring your father and mother reveal God's love? Well, authority is a good gift from God. It's an expression of his love. To be sure, authority can be and has been abused. Nevertheless, parents and those in other positions of authority are God's good provision to teach us to walk in ways of wisdom. As we honor our parents and those in authority over us, we show our love for God's exercise of his good authority in our lives. He instituted this authority over us, and we trust that he loves us, and we will love him by honoring those in authority over us. Jesus calls us into a long life in the promised land of heaven as we join with him in loving and honoring God the Father. We do not murder because we entrust ourselves to God's perfect and loving justice. Isn't it loving of God to forbid us from murdering and killing one another? Principally, this command prohibits the unjust and intentional killing of another human being. It does not rule out capital punishment, but it does rule out individuals taking the sword of the state or the sword of the Lord into their own hands. We do not take justice into our own hands. One day God will right all wrongs. It has been made clear from almost the very beginning of the scriptures that the reason God is deeply concerned about murder is because it relates to his image and glory. See, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28 teaches us that God made man in his image. And according to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, murder is nothing less than the removal of one of God's image bearers from the face of the earth. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus shows us that the real problem of murder arises from a problem in the heart. See, when we've become angry with others in our hearts, Jesus tells us we've actually committed murder. Who here hasn't committed murder? Who here hasn't been angry with others? Jesus deepens this command and its implications we're all guilty of so devaluing human life, so devaluing the glory of God's image in others that we dismiss them altogether as though they are worthless. You know, a question that often arises with respect to the sixth commandment is whether or not abortion should be classified under murder. Sadly, yes, I think so. Abortion is the unjust taking of innocent human life. And yet... For anyone here this morning who has been impacted by the trauma of abortion, I want you to know that there is forgiveness available. That you need to know that Jesus was innocent and that his life was taken so that we can be forgiven of our sins. His blood was shed so that we might be forgiven of the blood that we have shed. And the Apostle Paul, he came to know this in a profound way. As he was guilty of murder and yet forgiven 
and called by Jesus to go and proclaim the wonders of his love. You need to know that Jesus forgives sinners like you and me. He calls us to come to him in faith and love. And you need to know that we as a church, we welcome you in faith and in love. We want to comfort you and console you and remind you of the love and acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has shown his love for us in making us in his image. And we show our love for God by protecting his image, by protecting the lives of other human beings. This is why we encourage and support ministries like Assist Pregnancy Center. Christians have long recognized that not only does this command prohibit murder, but that it positively promotes the way of love and the protection of life. Love will show itself in protecting and preserving the lives of those made in God's image. Not only does love protect the lives of others, but love protects the relationships of others. Upholding the seventh commandment, which we find there in verse 18, means preserving and protecting our neighbor's chastity in heart, mind, speech, and behavior. As Jesus teaches us in his Sermon on the Mount, this command forbids unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. This command forbids adultery both outwardly and inwardly. Think of how different our world would be if we loved one another like this. Think of how different our world would be if love led us to protect each other's chastity and relationships. Modesty then becomes a form of love. Being careful not to find ourselves alone with a member of the opposite sex becomes a form of love as we seek to guard their reputation, their relationships, and their integrity. Refusing to look upon another as an object for our personal satisfaction works against the grain of self-love and becomes selfless love. God has bounded sexual expression to the covenant bond of marriage. And for the married, this means that love to God is shown by positively delighting in your spouse and in no other. Having so much love for them that there's no room for another. So married brothers and sisters, love your spouse passionately, purposefully, persistently, and personally. Pursue loving them. Not some version of them that you want, but them as God has made them and given them to you. For the unmarried, this means that love to God is shown by being grateful for God's providence. Yes, I said grateful. That's something more than not complaining about your singleness. You should be grateful to God for his providence, even for your singleness. God only gives what is best and most loving to his people. This means that if he has not given you a spouse, then you need to know he is enough. In fact, he's more than enough. He is all you will ever need. And every honest and humble married believer will tell you that another human being cannot satisfy our deepest longings. Only God can. Sadly, there are many married people who are lonely. One day, God may be pleased to give you a spouse, but in his wise providence, he may decide that what you need most is him and him alone. Your singleness is no accident it is not even a tragedy. It is not a mistake. It is God's divine design to draw you deeper into the arms of his love and union with Jesus Christ. Marriage between a man and a woman is not ultimate. Marriage between Jesus Christ and his church is. And because he has sworn to give his love to his people and to no other, this command reveals God's love for us. It teaches us, as his people, that he will be faithful to us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. Verse 19, there, it succinctly states the eighth commandment. Like the sixth and seventh commandment, this command helps us to guard us 
helps to guard us from selfishness in relationships with others, prizing possessions over people and procuring them by unjust means. Positively, this command promotes love, the love of our neighbor and the protection of their wealth. This commandment is a loving gift from God as it reminds us that everything in this world is not ours for the taking, but his for the giving. What we have, we have as a trust from him. And we show our love for him not by stealing what our neighbor possesses, but by giving thanks for what God has given us and even sharing what we have with others. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. See, God provides for us through the ordinary means of our labor, our work. Love gives thanks for God's provision. More than that, love does not steal, but it gives of itself for others. This is just what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. In verse 20, we're told that love does not bear false witness. And here, a courtroom context is in view. But there are no doubt broader applications for this command. Just as God's people are prohibited from taking material possessions, from taking relationships from others, from taking life, so they are prohibited from taking immaterial possessions. It is through a false witness that a person's good reputation, the theft of a good name, can be stolen. See, this law is a good gift of God as it seeks to protect the names of the righteous. Love opposes lies. Love opposes lies. And our Lord of love endured lies for our salvation. When Jesus was brought into the courtroom and asked whether or not he was the Messiah, he bore witness to the truth. But those around him broke this commandment by bearing false witness against their neighbor. Jesus, he kept and fulfilled this law. And because he did, he was put to death. We show our love for God, the God of truth, and love for our neighbor when we speak the truth about God and speak the truth about our neighbor. And we speak in such a way as to give grace for those who hear. We speak the truth in love. And now, the commandment you've all been waiting for, the 10th commandment. Not because it's last, right? But because it's the most convicting The 10th commandment ends where the first began, with matters of the heart. Here, God tells his people that they may not covet anything, anything that belongs to their neighbor. Who would know what's going on in your heart? God would. How is this law loving? I mean, don't we all want things we cannot have? Can you really prohibit that? Who can keep this law? How is this law loving? This law is a loving gift from God precisely because it exposes our wandering hearts. It exposes the fact that we are tempted to love the creation more than the creator. It exposes the fact that too often we fail to trust and give thanks for God's good provision. It exposes the fact that too often we are living as though this world is our home. It exposes the fact that too often we are tempted to fill our lives with temporary loves rather than the transcendent and eternal love of God. It exposes the fact that too often we are discontent and that we're treating God's good gifts as gods instead of gifts from God. The one who said, you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment. Sometimes it is loving to be told that we are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love and therefore be led to pray, take my heart, take and seal it for thy courts above. Friends, brothers and sisters, this is a law of love. It is a law which reveals to us God's sovereign and satisfying love. It is a law which reveals our selfish love and calls us to selfless love. How will you respond to God's law of love. As we, as we look in the mirror of God's law and his love, as we look in the mirror of the Ten Commandments and we reflect on our, our own lives in light of this law, 
I want you to ask this. Have you kept it? Have you kept God's law? Have you loved like this? Have you loved God and your neighbor like this? Have you kept God's law personally? Have you kept it perfectly? Have you kept it perpetually? I want you to keep those questions in your mind as we turn to consider our third and final point, a promise of love. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, we see the people of Israel, they make a promise of love in these verses that follow. And as I read these verses, and as you follow along, see if you can spot the promise that the people of Israel make, and I'll give you a hint, you'll find it in verse 27. All right, let's begin reading in verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added, no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that you may do them in the land that I am giving you them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Verses 22 to 27, recount the people of Israel's first reaction to God giving, to the giving of God's law at Mount Sinai or Horeb. Verses 28 to 33 then recount the Lord's response to Israel's reaction and his instructions to Moses. And, and if I had to summarize uh, Israel's reaction uh, in verses 22 to 27, this is how I'd put it. Praise God, the Lord, Lord, you have shown us your glory, and we're not dead. Uh, Moses, we don't want to die, so if you would just go and hear the rest of what God has to say, uh, and if you make it, just come back and tell us, and, and we'll do all that he says. We promise. Well, I've probably described Israel's reaction in a rather lighthearted manner. Uh, I think Israel's reaction is actually uh, far more serious, thoughtful, and measured, as God actually agrees with them in verses 28 to 33. God will not agree to silliness, but he will agree to seriousness. God sees that they are taking his authority, his glory, his commands, and his love seriously. In verse 27, it amounts to a promise from the people of Israel. It amounts to the people of Israel saying, we've considered your glory, your majesty, and your authority. We've considered your love, and in view of it all, we will do it. We will keep your law. And it is at this point that we must remember that Moses is recounting what happened 40 years ago at Horeb, at Sinai. Remember, he's recounting what happened in the past, and he's communicating this to a new generation. What is the effect of all of this? What is this new generation, this, this generation standing on the edge of the promised land, supposed to make of all of this and take from all of this? How are they supposed to react and respond? They are supposed to pick up the promise of their parents and live it out. The promise that was made 40 years ago is the promise that they should make today. 
That's why Moses recounts God's response to Israel's reaction in verses 28 to 33. Verse 29, see there, God wants you to personally fear him. God wants you to keep perfectly all of his commandments. God wants you to have a such, such a heart as this always, perpetually. God wants personal, perfect, and perpetual love displayed through the keeping of his commandments. The sad story of Israel's history, really the sad story of human history, is that people don't keep the law. Israel did not love as they promised. And as we stare into the mirror of the Ten Commandments and ask ourselves, have we personally, perfectly, and perpetually kept God's commands? We must answer, no. And that is why this law, this law of true love, drives us to Jesus. See, this law reveals our slavery to sin and our need to be set free to live this law of love. This law reveals that we're idolaters, exploiters, murderers, and adulterers. It reveals that we're worthy of judgment and condemnation before God. It reveals that we're worthy of death and hell. And it reveals why Jesus is such a wonderful and merciful Savior. Jesus and Jesus alone was the only one who personally, perfectly, and perpetually kept this law of love. See, he was careful to do everything the Lord God commanded. Verse 32. He was the only one who never turned aside to the right hand or to the left. He was the only one who ever walked in all the ways that the Lord God commanded. Verse 33. And though he was perfectly loving and perfectly sinless, he was punished in his death on the cross for the sins of unloving lawbreakers like you and me. And still, three days after his death, God the Father raised him from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that he was the sufficient and all-satisfying sacrifice for sin. Through his saving work, he has secured an eternally long life in the promised land of heaven for all who are united to him in love. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to turn from your sins and to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Turn from your life of self-love and trust in the loving life of Jesus. Believe that he lived for you the life of love that you have not lived, the life of love that I have not lived. Believe that in love he died for you Believe that his resurrection proves that love has won. And if you want to know more about what it means to love and serve and follow the Lord Jesus, please do come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important than thinking about how Jesus, the Lord of love, lived this law of love to save us and show his love for us. As we conclude I want us to think through the question of whether or not we should keep this law. I want us to think through whether or not we should make this promise that the people of Israel made. Should we make this promise? Well, is this a law of love or not? Does it display the loving character of our God or not? Does it outline the way of love to God and the way of love to our neighbor or not? Did Jesus love this way or not? Do we call ourselves followers of Jesus or not? The truth is, if we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, it is our heart's desire to live this law of love. That was the promise of the prophet Jeremiah that we heard earlier in the service. Jeremiah chapter 33, 31 verse 33 makes clear that God has put his law of love within the hearts of new covenant believers. Through the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit, new covenant believers in Jesus have this law written on our hearts. It is our heart's desire. Can we keep this law of love? Yes. Will we falter and fail in doing so? Yes. We will not perfectly 
and perpetually keep this law? Our Father knows that. And still, it is God's desire that we live in His way of love. That's part of why He's given us the gift of the Spirit, to help us learn to walk in this way of love throughout our lives so that we can increasingly display His love to this world, to this watching world. In the words of verse 29, this is the heart that God wants us to have, a heart that loves Him, that fears Him and keeps His commandments. How can we not pursue this life of love after all that he has done for us in Jesus. See, we love because he first loved us. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for writing into history your magnificent, mighty, and merciful display of love towards sinners like us. Father, we give you thanks for revealing this law, how it reveals your love for sinners like us, and how it points us and reveals to us the righteous love of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we are called to follow. Father, we ask for the gracious help of your Spirit, that you would help us to trust in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that he lived this life of love for us and for our salvation. We pray and lift these things up in the name of our loving Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, brothers and sisters, uh, our next song can be found on the insert in your bulletin. Let me encourage you to go ahead and, and pull that out. It's entitled, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. In this song, we remember that Jesus is the great and sure fulfillment of the law and that our whole hope of salvation is found in him. So let's sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Please stand as we sing. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery, He the perfect Son of Man. In His living, in His suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, a great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. 